Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSC podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. Hello and welcome to Talk Justice. I'm your host, Jason Taché. As the justice system continues to digitize, more data is collected and made accessible. This information is often a record of a person's darkest hour, an eviction, a divorce, a child custody dispute. Previously protected by being locked up in paper files, today this information is more easily available for free under public records laws, sold by agencies to data brokers, or leaked through a hack. The impact of this data making it online can negatively affect people long after their legal issue is resolved. At the same time, the digitization of justice system data outpaces the creation of data protection policies, which concern themselves with how data is used in cybersecurity practices. To understand the state of court and legal aid data privacy, harm, and security, I'm joined by three guests. Shauna Dillavu is a digital security expert and the CEO of Brightlines, a data privacy service. Zach Zarnow is a principal court management consultant at the National Center for State Courts. And Jeff Harvey is the CEO of Community Legal Services in Florida. Thank you all for being with us. Now, Zach, I want to start with you. And Jeff, I'm going to ask you a similar question afterwards. But I wanted to start by getting some historical grounding. Before we made all of this data digital, what were the privacy considerations of courts? Court records, as a matter of public policy, generally are public. But before digital records, as you noted in your intro, sort of inadvertent privacy protection was that you had to go to the court to get those records. So it wasn't intentional, but it did serve as a privacy protection of sorts. Um, There are protections in place now, but there's a tension between that open records requirement and the kinds of cases where we want to protect personal information or privacy. And that can be a mixture of court rule, state legislative action. Um, It can even be the parties themselves asking via motion for certain data to be restricted. But you can imagine why in cases involving children or minors, or certain kinds of domestic violence or sexual assault cases, or even in the current moment eviction records, you'd want to seal or prevent those from being public because there's public policy reasons to do so. For legal aid, you know, they have privacy concerns that mirror all of those with the courts because they're actually court users, but they also have additional considerations as they think about their obligation to funders. For example, it's good to get money from the legal services corporation and you have to tell the legal service corporation what you're doing with that money, but you also at the same time need to be protective of your client's privacy and data protection And so how do you anonymize that information in reporting? How do you aggregate it or otherwise protect it in reporting? And then the last thing I'll note is that in the moment, not everywhere, not everyone, but often you can go to a remote hearing or you can file remotely. That wasn't true in the pre-digital age. And so a privacy concern back then was actually physically appearing in court. You were saying something by being there. If you were to imagine a domestic violence situation, for example, filing something in a community where people see you filing something means something. And so being cognizant of that back then was a real concern, and to a degree, it still is today. And and Jeff, I want to follow up with you from the legal aid perspective. How does that resonate with you? How has your role as a legal services provider changed on account of, or your concerns changed on account of the digitization of data? So um, I'll tell you that uh, Zach is spot on, I think, in terms of everything he's mentioned. Um, A couple of things as well with us. 
where we used to retain, and this is both a legal lawyer requirement, but it's also a funder requirement, right? We used to retain client files for a period of time because it both provided um, from, from the legal side, right? It provided some protection to the actual client under the rules of the Florida bar. And I'm sure most states are the same way, but then from a funding side too, it also provided proof. If you think about, right, keep your tax returns for seven years. Well, these were all the backup documents to the tax returns for lack of a better word. And so lots of storage space of file cabinets and, and the like, as we've gone through and digitized, you know, we have become less and less dependent on paper files. You know, our, my organization now is at the place where every file is an electronic file. We don't, um, uh, tell an attorney that they can't have paper, you know, if they want to print out the entire record for that matter, fine, but that is not the official record. And at the end of the case, that document needs to be destroyed. And the official record really is that electronic file. And so a couple of pieces with that one, um, I think the risks have changed. So back in the day, the biggest risk we had, and we actually dealt with this as an organization is you, you have a hurricane because Florida gets hurricanes. You have a bunch of water intrusion or flooding. And now all of a sudden you have two years worth of client data and client files that are destroyed. Now, you know, we don't have to worry so much about that unless we happen to be hosting our own servers and, and those things are in a place where they're going to get destroyed by weather. But we do have to much more, and I think in both of those types of cases, right, worry about the different attacks that involve a little bit more than just picking a lock and walking into a building in the middle of the night. Perfect. And, and that's exactly where I wanted to bring you into this conversation, Shauna. So Zach has hinted at some of these concerns regarding eviction and domestic violence cases in courts. Uh, Jeff has let us know that they're no longer scared of hurricanes taking out their data, but there are new threats uh, on account of digitizing data. So I was hoping you could give us a sense of now that we've pulled ourselves out of the dark ages and begun to digitize this justice system data, how have the threats changed uh, and what should we be concerned about? Oh my God. I feel like they've multiplied exponentially. Like at one point it was the physical documentation going away, right? Like, yeah, a hurricane, a disaster, a fire, that was a big deal. Um, now, like <laughs> now you have them in perpetuity everywhere. They can't, they can't be deleted. I mean, I think the issue, you know, the issue that I have with this, that I think the biggest security risk in my mind as a person who's concerned about the security of individual people um, is the amount of data that's online connected to someone's name, their date of birth, or something else that's identifiable to them, even if they're anonymized to some degree, they can be de-anonymized, and that that data is out there in perpetuity. Um, and it affects, you know, it's like it affects everything. If you read Dr. Kathy O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction, it affects someone's whole life. It can affect their insurance rates, their ability to get a job or a mortgage or, you know, a car loan. Um, and the effect there is like, you've got systems of oppression that continue to oppress the same vulnerable groups. Past that, of course, like there, I mean, as a, as a victim of like the SF-86, <clears throat> like hack of the OMB, like I can never travel to China again. Like that's kind of a pain in the butt. But I think there are other issues at play there when your data gets breached, um, when your data is stolen or when your data is put out there and harvested by an unethical data broker or were sold by your state. And for reference, the OMB hack is the Office of Management and Budget, which is the federal agency that had a bunch of people. So basically anybody who worked as a contractor or an employee of the federal government essentially had their social security numbers among other private information leaked. And so let's pull on that thread a little bit though. And, and Shauna, I can start with you and, and Jeff, if you want to jump in here, then, then what's the impact? So this data leaks. We see leaks happening all the time. Most of us were probably affected by the credit score 
uh, leaks from a couple of years ago. Uh, these things, we get constant updates from companies that we've given our data to that our data got lost somewhere along the way. Then what? Like, why should we be concerned about this? And especially for, as you mentioned, the marginalized communities that often come through courts and legal aid organizations. Well, I mean, on the consumer side, and I think that's kind of the tip of the iceberg that's above the water, right? The consumer side, and that's what all of these state laws are covering, is like, yes, you gave your information to Target, they stored your credit card and they lost it. So they give you a year of like credit monitoring, and that's kind of a pain in the butt, but you change your credit card number and hopefully it doesn't affect your credit score very much. But that's really low-hanging fruit and kind of inconsequential to most people. What's really bothersome is the amount of data that is used that you have no idea has been taken in a way that like builds a profile about you that affects how, like I said, like some of the bigger issues in your life. Like, can you get a home loan? Can you get it at a rate that's work worthwhile for you, something that you could afford? And that's this like entirely invisible. So let me back up a little bit and just kind of describe what happens. Say your date of birth, your name, and now your record, right? The times that you've shown up in court for different tickets or for different reasons, like that's been leaked. Or in the case of like Pennsylvania, it's just available. Someone can just download it. That gets attached to everything else that a data, so a data broker hoovers that information up and sells it to the next person. They combine data sets and create profiles about you. You fit into one or another character type, which means that you get a higher interest rate. You get uh, flagged. You don't get a certain kind of job. Um, Am I making sense with that? And, and there's been other evidence in lawsuits around people being redlined out of certain housing opportunities or certain employment opportunities because the way that ads are served to us are based on these profiles that you were talking about, which effectively takes these people out of whole aspects of the economy. I think the economy is a big piece, right? Because it's like a big piece of our lives, all these different decisions. But the piece that we deal with the most is then how much of your data exists with data brokers and how difficult it is to get that data taken down across hundreds of data brokers and hidden in all these different places. And then so what we deal with with doxing is folks getting angry at you because you've said something on Twitter and someone shows up at your front doorstep or accuses you, you know, or shows up at your kid's school or accuses you of something because they just don't like you and they found you. And unlike in the pre-times when they would have to have a phone book of your area to find your home address, they would have to maybe go to a library to find that if they didn't live in the same town, maybe they could then show up and maybe find you. Now it's just so easy. Sure. And so we, we have a sense of what this harm can look like, but Zach, to to having an idea of the potential impact of this information only goes so far, right? Like we need to know what courts and what legal aid organizations have in their databases. And I'm curious, uh, do we even know, do, do courts know what it is that they have that could potentially harm folks? Court data is really complicated. Um, you know, they, they use a vendor to get a case management system and they customize that for their particular needs. And then that data becomes either something that the vendor can look at or not, and something the court can share or not, something that you can scrape or not, something that you can create a profile in their system and access or not. And everyone stores it a little bit differently and shares it a little bit differently and maintains it a little bit differently and uses a slightly different configuration. And so the courts struggle to know what they have. Um, sometimes they don't think of certain things as data points, even though they are. And, and the courts also know that for someone to access it coherently, 
is challenging. So there's this opportunity that we've identified with data brokers where they're sophisticated actors who can go in and take certain pieces of data. But then there's the challenge for researchers or public policy experts who want to use court data to inform decision-making or propose changes who have a real challenge getting that data too. And the courts generally want to help with those things, but their staff and their resources are so limited to be able to do that is, is a real challenge for them. And so Jeff, is that what Zach's talking about? Is that also what you're seeing in legal aid? Like, where are you all at on understanding the data you have and being able to, to manage it and protect it? Yeah, so as an organization, you know, and, and really, I think uh, the industry, the legal aid industry, we're, we're just now starting to kind of get to a place where it's becoming uh, as important as it needs to be. Um, there's a lot of work to do. You know, as Shauna said, and you look at you look at these types of things and risk, right? And you see some of the big law firms getting hacked. And the first thing you think is, eh, we're pretty low hanging fruit. No one's going to want to come after us. All of our clients are low income. It's not like they got anything to steal, right? Identities are a huge issue, right? So people can have their identities stolen. Um, and, and a lot of the vendors that support legal aid um, have taken uh, positions that are, um, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to waste money on that. We're not going to worry about that. And so just to kind of take Shauna's thing in terms of, you know, once it's out and out there, it's out there forever. There are absolutely ways to delete and remove certain things that you have to be really sophisticated to go back and find the old archived copies. But um, when you're working with systems where you can't purge a record at all and it exceeds the seven year limitation that the bar requires and those types of things, that's just that much, that many more people, that much more stuff that you've got that, that, that is hanging out there that you could be liable for. And you could really, you know, as, as a lawyer, I'm, I'm here, right, to help the interest of the client. This is going to actually put them back. I think the other thing that we're starting to see that's really a challenge is, um, as it relates to the court records, when you try to make advances in one area, it inadvertently causes a decline in another area. So when you think about court records before, right, if I go on to a court record, and I'm looking for something very specific. I've got to know the name of the case or the case number or one of the parties. And then I might even have to go through and kind of guess what document it is and try to find that document. But now that we're moving, at least in Florida, we're moving from PDF to PDFA because that is something that will very much help people with disabilities to try to search things and we can go through, it makes it faster. But once you can search and find things faster, everybody can search and find things faster, not just those people that we're trying to assist. And so how do you balance that? And that, I mean, that's a difficult thing for lawmakers to do, but Legal aid, we are we are working, we are diligently working to kind of get up to speed and hopefully, you know, in, in many cases be leaders on this ahead of what would be small practice firms that really haven't quite gotten there yet. So I think that's a, a perennial issue when we talk about cybersecurity, right? There's an efficiency versus access point. More security means less efficient, less access, but it also means more secure. Shauna, one of the when, when I think about this issue, especially when it comes to courts, it's less so true for, for legal aid organizations, but as Zach already pointed out, courts are presumed to be public. There is a right to a public trial. The information is meant to be public by not only constitution, but by law. Uh, but we have, I, I see this two-way intersection without stop signs. In one lane, there is a car uh, with digitization in it. And then the other lane is public records laws. And in another lane, is uh, privacy. And they are all just heading towards each other. And I'm curious, how is it possible to keep this, some of the, at least some of this data available in a privacy respecting way that respects our country's goals of having open court requirements, 
but also not making people's lives a, a living hell in, in a doxing scenario like you've already talked yeah. about. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing to discuss is like, what does it mean to be public? And I think when the laws were written around what is public in an open court, there wasn't a public that was global <laughs> in, the, in your pocket. Do you know, like I can live stream on Twitch something that I'm doing in the court, right? Like, and anybody in the world can see it. That's probably not the public that we we were meant to have in our, our open courts public, right? Our courts open to the public. So I think um, some serious thought needs to be applied to that. Um, then, you know, there are lots of examples of how to protect information in databases and how to anonymize information, how to keep leaner data. I'm not sure that that's actually possible because different states will have different laws around what pieces of data need to be retained. But it sounds to me from what Jeff's saying, there is no data destruction. I couldn't find it in the data standards from SAC's organization that there's a discussion around data destruction or purging of data. Um, that would be a really easy way to get rid of so much of like what makes people vulnerable. So number one, like keeping leaner data or managing the data that you have. Number two, like what we recommend is to never, never incorporate your company in Florida because Florida sells that data to everybody. So when I think about that, I think about how I incorporated in Delaware because in Delaware, they're more known for privacy, right? But in Delaware, like, you have to have a case number. You have to have a business ID number that only comes to you on a piece of mail or an email that's yours to access your records. So there are definitely ways that other organizations, other agencies, other states, and of course, private companies have figured out how to manage privacy. The thing that kills me is that it doesn't seem like the folks who are on the... So it seems like we've considered a bunch of different users when we talk to a vendor about setting up an online database or managing the data in the courts. What it doesn't sound like is that one of the major user groups is represented and that's the folks whose data is in those records. It doesn't sound like folks who've been accused of crimes have ever been consulted about what has happened in their lives after that accusation. So I think having more representation on that side could be immensely helpful and eye-opening in ways that I couldn't sit here and I would rather not guess at, you know, rather not like entertain me with my thoughts on that one. I'm glad you brought that up. As I was going back, preparing for the show, I went back and read some of your older blog posts, Shana. And one of the things you did talk about is the importance of participation of users when conducting cybersecurity risk assessments. And I'm curious from Zach and Jeff's perspective, is this even a discussion happening in the courts of the legal aid world? I think we want it to be one. <laughs> I think Shana's right. So we've been working on this a little bit and the kind of approach we've taken our Two, two, twofold. There's first getting courts a little bit smarter about thinking through the contracting and, and the way in which they engage with some of these vendors and the privacy and data rights that are, are incorporated into those contracts in terms of service. And, and the other is thinking about just sort of transitions and moving from one system to the next and how you can make sure that you're thinking about the people that are using the system and what kind of information is retained and where does it go when you move from one system to the next. To Shauna's point, many people do not choose to use the courts at all. They have to use the courts, and yet the courts have made decisions around terms of service agreements and other contracts that directly impact those people. So you have a situation where someone didn't choose to use your institution but has to, and didn't choose your software but has to use it, and didn't ever see the terms of service but is bound by them. And, and Jeff, I'm wondering for you, is this a discussion that's that you see happening in the legal aid world? 
not as it relates to like, if you want to say the clients, right? So there's definitely that discussion that has now been happening um, when it relates to the employees and the volunteers. Um, but again, I think one of the issues you run into is um, who reads the fine print at the bottom and really wants to understand it. And so, you know, when we talk about funders, and and, and I think one of the points Zach made on that is is a great example is. Um, there are certain things that our funders, so my, one of my main funders is Legal Services Corporation. And, and one of the reports I must file with them um, on a, every six months is what we call affirmative litigation. And now that satisfies Congress's concern that I am using public money to instigate trouble, for lack of a better word, right? And so they want to keep this there. And it and it, it is meant, and I, as a matter of fact, I had made a mistake on a report one year and I called them back and said, hey, we forgot to include this case. What do we do? Are we in trouble? And they said, no, no. It's just a public record. We just have to maintain it as a public record for the purposes of people being able to go and look and see who who is instigating trouble. And so when we give all the disclaimers at the beginning that say, hey, in order for us to take your case, we need to make sure that we share certain information with our funder. And our, I mean, we don't talk like the fast used car salesman, but it, you got to get through this pretty quick because we only have so many resources and so little time. Most people don't care because they don't understand the importance of it. And, and I'll tell you my background. So just like Sean has had the OMB stuff, right? I've had my stuff come out of DOD. They probably have some sort of like um, access to my DNA somewhere from when, when the DOD breached. <laughs> it's it's uh, when, you, when you really figure out how people can put these things together and how, how the intelligence world works, which let's face it, that's exactly what this is, is. This is shadow intelligence trying to get intelligent people for the purposes of exploitation. It's really scary. And, you know, even as a as a lawyer, it's difficult to make that, I think, important to people that really their biggest concern right now is when do I eat or where do I live? I will say that I've had conversations with my wife about some some stuff where we're trying to make sure that we're keeping things together. And it's like, I don't want to tell her so much that she can't sleep at night because sometimes I think about those things, but enough to make it important to her. And there's that weird balance. And then on top of that, you know, I'm your lawyer, right? So take my word for it. I'm not going to use your data in some sort of bad way. But just like Zach pointed out with the courts, um, I really, it would be almost impossible to disclose all the ripple effects that come from that when you look at all the systems I use and all the places that I interface on the client's behalf. So tough. It, it is tough. And, and I think it brings up what I think is a really core issue that uh, I, I heard discussed really well, Zach, on your show, you host Tiny Chats with Danielle Hirsch for the National Center, which is great. Uh, and people should check it out if they haven't. But you recently had Dr. Natalie Byram on. She's based in England. And she brought up this really interesting dichotomy about how, and I think this is especially true in the United States, where we are really big on individual action and individual rights versus collective action and collective rights, is that a lot of the discussion in this space ends up being about informed consent for individual users of courts and legal aid. Like, can they sign? Like, know what it is they're signing away when it comes to their data? And that's kind of where the discussion hangs out. But she made this really great point that this is more of a collective good governance issue about the institutions as opposed to individual action itself. So, Zach, I'll start with you since I heard the discussion on your show. I'm wondering what your reaction was to that bifurcation, and if you think attention needs to be put on one one side or the other of that coin? I think ideally we're approaching it from both directions, but I, I think Dr. Byron's absolutely right. And the courts, as we just discussed, they have users that they don't pick, but their users don't pick them either. So they have a duty then, I think, to really be thoughtful about this and make sure when they're talking about terms of service and contracts that they're discussing data privacy. You know, Does the vendor have access to this or not? Can we control whether they have access to it or not? Do we grant access to other parties? And if so, in what ways? 
Does, is there a destruction policy? Is there, is there a means by which someone can opt out of something? You know, all, all those are the kinds of questions that uh, I think, unfortunately, not all courts have been asking. And, and I, that's not meant to blame them because they're under enormous stress and there's a lot to think about here. And some of these contracts are big, long-term contracts. But as we've accelerated the digital adoption and really moved into a new era, particularly for the courts, these are the kinds of questions you can't afford not to ask anymore. So I think Dr. Byron was right on that. It has to take collective action. To some degree, that's on the courts. On the courts, on the agencies themselves, but also there's this open question of data privacy legislation, right? We America is notable, the U.S. is notable in that it is one of the largest countries in the world without any data, national data privacy law. There are only five states in the country that have uh, such a law as the, the time of recording this. So I wanted to do a quick, um, as we move into like the solutions and what do we do about this fire uh, that is burning everywhere that that no one's paying attention to. Um, a quick round of policy yes or no questions of where where does the solution lie? Uh, and I'm putting you on the spot, uh, so I I don't really apologize for that. That's just going to be what's going to how we're going to play the game. Uh, so quick yes or no from all of you. And, and Zach, I'll, I'll start with you. Should courts and legal aid organizations require be required by law to do data audits? Yes. Uh, Jeff. Yes. Which is a big deal because that means more headache and paperwork for you. And it's expensive. And it is Hell expensive. Yes. It does not come without cost. And Shauna, <laughs> what about you? <laughs> uh, so when we started to digitize medical records back in the 90s, Congress got together and passed the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which is maybe kind of only sort of the only real national data privacy law that we have, uh, which I'm sure I will get hate tweets from the privacy law community uh, after this runs. But do we need something similar for justice systems? Do we need a HIPAA for law and justice? Uh, Shauna? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You, you don't, you, you, are you certain? I'm still, I'm still processing like what, what is HIPAA protecting? Like your privacy around your data that you, yes, absolutely. Zach? I think so. <laughs> I'm likewise still processing. I mean, is this the part where I say I'm speaking on my own behalf and not on behalf of my organization? <laughs> I, think so. I think so. Sure. Uh, Jeff? Um, so I know you want a yes or no, and I have to stop myself here a little bit because um, I, do, I do in many cases have some restrictions on the types of things that I can and cannot do in terms of lobbying uh, and advocating, right? So uh, back to my original question, right? I'll, first of all, I'll say this is my own opinion based on my experience. But second of all, um, you know, I think that there is definitely some sort of need to ensure that we are looking out for that kind of stuff because you did ask that other question on informed consent versus good governance and and again i can tell you as a lawyer um especially with the type of people we serve hey i know you're facing eviction i need to get your informed consent on something before i can proceed right sure i think that's a great point i mean is that a really is that really a meaningful um uh given of consent yep. you know and so i definitely had people call and complain and say hey i'm not sharing my data with you at all Wait, you know, I got to give you my last name. Fine. I'm not getting, and they're angry because they don't get services, but, um, the, it, the, there are some people that actually catch it. I guess. I think that's a really good point, And I appreciate you bringing that up. There's a compulsion component. Like if you have a action coming to you, uh, brought by the state, informed consent's kind of a moot point to the whole thing. Right. Uh, so I think that's absolutely right. So, so last, uh, quick policy question is recently in the last year, the Michigan Supreme court banned that's local courts from selling its data to anybody, uh, including data brokers. Should this be policy in every state? 
uh, Shauna? I mean, you know my answer. Yes, and across all public agencies, not just the courts, not just the DMV or DPS, like anybody, any county assessor, any voter records should not be sold. Zach? I think I personally would say, yeah, I, I agree that there shouldn't be the sale. I also am aware of some of the constraints on the courts when it comes to funding, and I don't excuse that for that reason, but I do know that in some places, that's one way to keep the doors open, is selling some of that data. So in that instance, I think to our earlier conversation, you got to be real careful how you do that. But yeah, I think I personally would prefer the public agencies weren't selling data. And Jeff, I don't know if you feel comfortable jumping in on this one, but I welcome you to. Yeah, what I will say is this, is from a legal perspective, if um, if my client has a specific piece of data or a, a bunch of data that they're providing in order to try to get something done, you know, that we didn't contemplate in the deal that that you were also going to take that and profit off that. I mean, there's an aspect of that that, it, that is, in fact, your personhood and that there are probably, if we follow this out to its logical conclusion, some constitutional rights that, you know, if that, that, that might be implicated um if 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 a government is doing that i mean frankly you don't raise taxes without a hearing this is rev raising revenue with an impact on individuals and there's really not a lot of oversight on it and so it's a different way of thinking about it i think i would tell you um you know from a personal perspective i will say that my organization will never sell data um, we absolutely collect it. And there's a lot of ways that we can use marketing and that type of stuff to get to the people we're looking to serve because there is data being sold and collected. Um, but I, I have an obligation to keep my client's information confidential. And I would assume that in many cases that should apply to uh, public entities as well. And now to, to kind of shift into the, the close of this, I wanted to have each of you on the show because you're all doing very interesting work from different perspectives in this space. And as opposed to focusing solely on the kind of the nightmare that uh, data can create in our society and is currently creating in our society. I wanna leave on a note of, of hope of, of where the work is going and how people and organizations can Im improve their situation when it comes to data privacy and security. So Zach, I, I wanna start with you. You at the National Center uh, with my old colleague from, from Georgetown, Keith Porcaro, built this new project called Existing Technology Projects. Uh, can you tell us briefly what it is and how it can help courts think through the issues we were talking about today? Yeah, uh, it's exiting technology projects, though, not ex not existing. Oh, and my apologies, <laughs> exiting technology projects. Thank you. It's okay. It, it kind of applies either way. I think the point here is that when you're moving from one platform to another, like a built system to a buy system, from legacy to new, from vendor to vendor, the courts really need to take into account all the sorts of things we've been talking about today. And so we built an interactive little website that Keith designed really lovely. It's beautiful. We've got this little booklet that we'll mail to you if you want a copy. And there's a PDF you can just download because we don't want this to be a problem for courts to get their hands on. And the idea here is use it to plan through the transition. Think about what's coming next. What happens if that vendor goes out of business or gets acquired or stops supporting that version of the software you use? Um, we talk a lot about the data privacy stuff here, but those questions are in there as well. What are you going to do? If the vendor you know, can access the data, can they access it without restrictions? Do you have control over that? All those sorts of questions that really need to be asked. So we're trying to get scrappy and get the courts thinking about this because they're entering into more and more contracts and almost all of them implicate data. And that could be found on the National Center for State Courts website, correct? Yeah, ncsc.org slash exiting tech. Perfect. Uh, and Shana, you take a different approach, less organizational, more individual. Uh, as we were talking about that dichotomy before. Uh, so how 
can people help protect themselves online? So something does get breached, their information does get out there, their case information. What happens next for them and, and how do you help them? I mean, their case information's out there. What we can do is help scrub it. And so Brightlines is an organization that searches near and far across 10 plus databases to find every little piece of information about you. Um, think about like a Delete Me or a Canary or these services that will scrub your data from data broker websites, but ours is like that across 10 other sites. Um, and the hard part about the way that we do it is that it's expensive because it's a lot of work to get stuff taken down because we don't have, we don't have data, we don't have individual rights around our data. Um, and in this country, like you mentioned, there's no federal law. Um, yeah, the individual approach is only because we don't, this is the this is the area where we see we can make an impact, um, not because we believe that's the approach. It shouldn't be on the, it shouldn't be on an individual's shoulders to deal with the mountains of data that are out there about them that they never consented to having out there, that they don't even know is out there. Like I said, like there's the tip of the iceberg and then there's everything else that they have no idea is connected to them. Um, and they are the ones that are going to have to do something about it. So thinking through how to get the information after it's already online, Zach is helping courts think through what the potential implications of the data they're collecting uh, could be. And then Jeff, uh, I'll finish with you. When we were talking a few weeks ago, you were talking about different standards the organization was trying to meet in regards to cybersecurity and where you think the puck is headed in regards to, if we ever get there, federal standards on these types of matters. So I was hoping you could talk about what your organization is going through right now, what standards you're trying to meet and why. Right, so um, as we started this endeavor a couple of years ago, you know, we first started with kind of the NIST standard just because that seemed to be what the current industry standard was. And then um, recently, and, and I haven't followed all the details other than, you know, we had this, this maturity model concept that came through. I believe it got through Congress and it was getting ready to become a law. And then for some reason, the brakes got put on it. Um, and and the, the from the people that I know that would be most impacted by it the soonest, you know, friends that I have in other places, those the, um, it was going to start with the Department of Defense. And my read of the tea leaves is at some point it was going to trickle down to the point where it would follow every federal dollar. And so, you know, while it may be five, 10 years down the road, I would not be surprised if uh, a recipient of federal funds must do certain things. Uh, and that does a couple of things. One, it kind of delays the need for actual legislation because we're looking for ways to protect it. But then two, um, it does at least make a valid attempt. And so, you know, what I have been trying to do individually is not just with my organization, but um, I spoke last week at the Equal Justice Conference with LSC on the same topic is that, you know, and I hate the term cybersecurity because people hear that and they immediately think tech and their ears close. And frankly, it's just security. You, you don't leave the key under the mat when you've neighbors watching yourself from across the street. It's the same thing. It just happens to be a different door. And so leaders of organizations need to start doing something. And if you do something, it's better than doing nothing. And so even though there's this big, massive endeavor and we're going through it because I fully committed the organization to do it. And so we're literally trying to get to that NIST CMNC standard in the next year and a half. It's, it's tough. If you don't even take the time to kind of think through these stuff to talk through this stuff, it's going to be a problem. And, and the most important, I think here is um, the leaders and all of the members of the organization need to understand it. If, if we pass it off to IT, it really won't get the emphasis it deserves because it's, we say cyber, but it's, it's risk management. 
it is it is how do you balance the risk probability and severity of risk in order to protect your organization and the people that you're here to work for and and so really at this point just trying to provide resources um I will say this, that the Legal Services Corporation just came out with a program where all of legal aids are going to get free access to um, cybersecurity training, because we know that one of the vulnerabilities is the end user. And so the more that the end user knows what they're doing, that, you know, that's one that's one door that we can kind of put a lock on. Um, it is it is something. So it, it's an absolute step in the right direction. Is it enough? There's a, it'll never be enough. Just like any defense, um, if you aren't always trying to improve it, you're you're going to wake up a week from now and realize you're vulnerable. It, without a doubt, this is going to be a, a perennial uh, issue. And, and before I sign off, Jeff, you mentioned the maturity model that was working its way through Congress. Do you remember the name of either the bill or the model for people that may be listening at home? I don't remember the bill. Uh, they called it the CMMC. I think the um, cyber maturity model uh, was a framework, but effectively this, this, this idea was that um, starting with the Department of Defense and maybe certain other agencies, organizations, government organizations had to get in compliance within a certain amount of time. But what was interesting with the DOD side is um, it immediately applied to certain programs that were private contractors based on their connection through DOD. And it had this kind of idea that over the next five to seven years, it was going to make its way down to, I don't know what you would think is the least least important in terms of that, whatever agency is the least important. And so I just, I have no knowledge for sure if that was going to tag along to me, but just having seen things work before, it, it would not be too far of a leap to make it, you know, become uh, uh, one of the conditions on which I can receive funding. And, and I, I think to that point, it just shows how, dynamic and perennial these issues are, are going to be going forward. This is not going to be a, an issue that is solved, uh, but rather managed uh, into perpetuity. And so and again, it, it may have been passed into a law and then the 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 implication, not implication, but the uh, implementation of it may have been stalled or stopped indefinitely uh, or it may not have actually made its way in there. That I don't know. You're going to have to research it, but it's the it's the it's called the Cybersecurity Maturity Model CMMC. As, as those uh, things change, I hope that y'all will come back and help us understand uh, whatever the landscape looks like in one, two, five, ten years until, you know, this is all done or, or we are all done, <laughs> basically, is how cybersecurity is going to work for all of us. With that, I'd like to thank Shauna, Jeff, and Zach for being with us on Talk Justice. For links to what we discussed today, please check out our show notes. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jason Taché, and for everyone here at Talk Justice, thank you for listening. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.